Hey, good morning. Everybody's making their way on in. It's, it's good to see you. Thanks for uh, taking your time out of your Saturday mornings to uh, be here at this seminar. So, so what do you guys want to talk about? Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Chase Jacobs. I am the Minister of Theological Training here at DSC uh, for one more week. And then I become the executive pastor, which is, uh, or the executive minister. We haven't really figured out, I, sometime by the end of October, I will be the executive pastor here at DSC, and I'm really excited about that. But um, yeah, thank you. I, w- I wasn't asking for that, but thank you. Um, but as my, last, as my last gesture as the minister of theological training, uh, it's, my, it's my privilege to put together this seminar. One of the reasons that we do seminars like this is because as a church, uh, we believe that the primary thing that the people of God need to hear on a Sunday morning is the Bible. And so we want to open up the Bible, and we want to preach God's Word to you. And when God's Word leads us to engage in things that are um, pressing in the society and in the culture, then we want to let God's Word lead us to talk about that. But we don't want uh, the culture and discussions outside of the church to, to tell us what we should be talking about on Sunday mornings. We want God's Word to tell us what we should talk about on Sunday mornings. But sometimes it's good for us to spend some extended time thinking about pressing issues in society or in the culture around us. And so that's why we do these seminars from time to time. And so that's what we're talking about today is uh, a really pressing, pressing issue, uh, the issues of race, diversity, and justice. And so we've titled this seminar, All One in Christ. But those three headings, that's going to be kind of our outline for this morning. So you have some idea of where we're going today. We're going to have uh, really two talks, but we're going to break them up into those three parts. And so the first talk this morning is going to be a longer talk about the topic of race. What is race? And then we're going to take a break after that talk, and then we're going to tackle those next two subjects, diversity and justice in another talk. And then when that talk's done, we're going to take another break. And my hope is that we have plenty of time left over after those two talks for questions. And so when uh, the second talk is done, we're going to take a break. I'm going to ask Pastors Ryan and Drew to come up here with me. And then we're going to do just an open question and answer. And we'll have microphones that you can come and talk to. And so just I, I say that at the outset. If I say something that's confusing, write it down. And you can ask about it later. If I don't say something that you think I should have said... Write that down, and you can ask us about it later. Um, If you came in here with questions that don't get covered in one of the two talks, that's great. There will be time to ask those questions at the end. So that's kind of the the outline of how this morning is going to look. And and speaking of questions, before we jump into uh, the actual talk that we have this morning, I thought thought it would just be helpful for me to start to share a little bit more about myself um, and really my journey as it relates to these topics that we're, we're going to be talking about this morning. So when I was in college, so this was about 15 years ago, um, I actively identified as a democratic socialist. And if you don't know what that is, I'm sure you've uh, heard about it, um, but that was, that was what I was. I called myself a democratic socialist. I don't know that I was a very good socialist. Um, I don't think I had a particularly, particularly sophisticated understanding of Marxism, but, but that was the view that uh, I, I held on to. I found that a very compelling vision, and here's the reason why. By the time I had gotten to college, um, I was very disenchanted with the world, and I was very aware that there was something wrong 
with the world. I just felt that very deeply, and I was very burdened for problems that I saw in the world. And I saw people that were poor and hurting and didn't have uh, everything that they needed. Um, I, I grew up around people that had what seemed to me like way more than what they needed, and, and they were not uh, particularly good people. I knew people who had been taken advantage of. I was, I was just seeing all of this brokenness in the world, and I was really burdened for it. And then I was even becoming aware of, of a brokenness in myself. And, and I, I just thought, man, there's just something wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the world. And Marxism provided an answer to that question. It told me what was wrong with the world. Greed and capitalism. And it told me how to solve the problems in the world. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. And if everybody stopped being selfish and, and those people that are stubborn and are being selfish, well, we'll just make them be unselfish anyway. If we just did that, then the whole world would be fixed. And so I grabbed onto that. That made a lot of sense. You know, just to say from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that made total sense to me. And so I embraced this idea. And I actually think um, leaning into those ideas of Marxism is actually what led me to becoming a Christian. Because God didn't let me stay there. But he used that angst of there's something wrong with the world and there has to be a solution. He actually used that to drive me even deeper into the truth that, that actually the problem with the world isn't greed and it isn't money. And the solution to the world isn't some economic or political system. The problem with the world is sin. And the solution to the problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I had this angst in my heart that I was trying to use political systems and economic systems to fix, but that angst that actually led me to the gospel. And so when God brought the gospel to me through lots of different means, I said, yes, this is it. No, this is what I've been looking for. This is the problem, and this is the solution, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I became a Christian in college, and I didn't really stop being a socialist. Because I was a socialist before I was saved, and then I heard the gospel, and it made so much sense. And, and then I started to kind of put these things together. And you know what? When I read the Bible, I was like, man, it seems like God really cares about the poor a lot. And God wants the poor to be helped. And God wants us to meet people's needs. And when I looked at the early church, it looked like they were just sharing everything that they had in common. And that sounds a lot like what I was hearing about socialism. And so as I was a Christian and growing as a baby Christian, I thought, man, these things just fit together perfectly. And that continued for many years that I was ferociously seeking the Lord and trying to understand in my knowledge of who God was. And I was still trying to sort through the implications of all of these things. But if you talk to me at any given point in that period in college and then after college, I was a little socialist. And then I got in, engaged in uh, what, more of what we're talking about today, these issues of racial reconciliation and social justice. And, and so I was learning about these things as well. And as, as I was engaging in those things, it seemed to fit into these same kind of systems that I had. And you know what? Nobody said critical race theory when I was learning about this stuff, but that was what I was kind of being exposed to. And it made sense to me. It made total sense. Actually, I remember the first time I heard somebody use the word woke in a podcast. And now this is still a long time ago. This is 10 years ago. I heard somebody use the word woke and they were kind of explaining what this means. And I was like, yeah, that's a good, that's a good description of this. Because okay, there's these realities, and until somebody explains them to you and you can't see what's going on, you're kind of asleep to it. But then you wake up suddenly and you see white supremacy everywhere. I was that guy. I was that guy that's saying, oh, that's white supremacy. This is white supremacy here. Because I was woke, and I saw that, and I understood it. And it just made perfect sense to me. And so that was who I was. 
me, okay? And you guys know me. And I wasn't a different Christian then than I am now. I'm the same Chase. I'm the same Christian. But I was still sorting through a lot of stuff. And then I met a friend who was a graduate of Hillsdale College. So if you know what Hillsdale College is, there's not a lot of democratic socialists running around Hillsdale College, okay? He and I had very, very different politics. But we were members in the same church. And we were brothers in Christ. And he became one of my best friends. And we spent all kinds of time together. We did accountability together. We shared our sins with each other. We would meet in the morning and read the Bible together and talk about it and encourage one another to godliness and faithfulness. We would eat pizza together and play Settlers of Catan. And sometimes we talked about politics. And when we talked about politics, this guy who, frankly, knew a lot more than I did, he never treated me like I was an idiot. And he never belittled me. He never lectured me. He never made me feel like I was the enemy or some threat to the church. He never disparaged my views in other people, not even on social media. Okay, I never saw him saying things on Facebook and knew that I was included in this group of people that he was heaping scorn on. No. He never treated me as anything other than a brother in Christ. And he asked me lots of good questions. When we would talk, he respected me enough, he respected my intelligence enough that he would say, okay, you say that, can you explain that to me? Can you explain to me how you think that will work or how that might work in this system or in light of this Bible verse? And it wasn't in like a way where it was confrontational or it was challenging. He was wanting to know because he respected me as a brother in Christ. And so he would ask me lots of really, really good, insightful questions. And I started to tell as I was answering his questions that I was not very satisfied with my answers. And then maybe he asked a follow-up question that, that sort of cut the legs out from underneath something that I had just said. But he just asked me lots of questions. And it kind of became a pebble in my shoe. That I couldn't shake some of the things. I couldn't shake the ways that I didn't answer those questions very well. And it got me thinking. And then more years went and God slowly continued to mature me. God is maturing me this morning as I'm trying to understand more about what it means to be a just person in a fallen world. And I'm not going to go into more details about where I am politically. Let's just say I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> and I'm not woke. And I know because I was, okay? And, I, and the reason I'm sharing this story with you is, one, because I know that there might be somebody here, and the only reason that you're here is you want to see if I'm woke. I mean, or you want to find out if DSC is woke. Look, I'm not woke, and I know, because I know what woke is. I'm not that. In fact, I think Hillsdale College would be very happy to have me. Okay? So if that's why you came, I'm going to get that out of the way at the beginning. I'm tipping my hand at the outset. We're not woke. So can you listen to the rest of the stuff that we have to say? Because i got two more hours of stuff. Okay? But you don't need to be suspicious. Okay? We're trying to be mature and faithful and godly. I want to be biblical. I don't want to be conservative or liberal. I want to be biblical. And that's what I want to lead you guys in. So I share that story that way. Also, I share that story to say that you can be a Christian and be wrong. I was a wrong Christian for a long time. And if somebody came to me telling me that I wasn't a Christian because I was wrong, 
on a, on a second order or a third order thing, I don't know the damage that that would have done to me. And I share that story lastly so that you can hear and remember how people actually change their minds through meaningful relationships in Christ, through love, through people relating like we matter more than just our politics or our certain hot takes on, on issues of the day, okay? That's why I'm here today. And that's what I hope God would do in our time this morning, that we would grow in love, and that we would be able to ask good questions and have better answers to the questions that we're being asked, and that all of us would grow together into maturity, into Christ, who is our head. Amen? Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would use this time for that end, that you would mature us, that you would give us a better understanding of how to live in this world in light of your revelation, that we would be people that uh, are not at enmity with one another for any reason, but that we would pursue uh, unity and the bond of peace. God, I pray that you would give me words that are right and helpful, help me to be clear, and give everybody here open hearts. Help us to not be suspicious or defensive, um, and, and Lord, help us to, to use this as just a starting point in growing in Christ-likeness, and Lord, being... A, a witness to the world. God, I pray that you would use this time in our church to make us a witness to the world of what the truth is, of what real love looks like, of what real reconciliation looks like, of what God-glorifying diversity and justice looks like so that people would be saved because of the witness of Desert Springs Church for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's jump into our first topic, which is Race. Sorry, I went backwards. What is race? Am I doing this? I am. Okay. What is race? So we're going to see uh, right at the beginning, I'm actually going to argue race isn't a very good word for us to use. So it's, you know what clickbait is, right? Where you, you know, put something in the headline that is going to make somebody click it and then they come and um, then whatever is in the article is actually not related that much to what was in the headline. I kind of did that to you. But race is the word that we use but I'm going to argue that race is actually not the most helpful term for us as we engage in this discussion about race and as we see into racism because race is not really a biblical idea. If, if you are going to look for the idea of race at all in the Bible, what you would see is that the Bible says there's only one race, and that is the human race, okay? that we are all made in God's image, descended from Adam, and that that race in Adam fell in Adam and can be redeemed and become a new race in Jesus Christ. But in terms of race and the Bible, we are all one. Okay? This is what the book of Genesis says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We are all descended from one mother. So we are all one human race. Okay? Acts chapter 17 though, does give us an interesting uh, new category that we can use. It, Paul says, he made from one man every nation. Okay, in Greek, that's the word ethnos. Every nation of mankind, the one race, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So race is not a biblical category that we should use. Ethnicity, or ethnos, is one that we should very much use because it, as I'll show you, is all over the Bible. So whenever you see tribes or nations, this is referring to ethnos, okay, to this idea of ethnicity. This is a really good quote. This is from uh, a book 
that's uh, called A New Reformation by Shai Lin. And any book, let me just get this out of the way, any book that I recommend to you will probably have things in it I don't agree with, okay? So don't take, I'm not giving you, the Bible is the only book I agree with entirely, okay? But I thought this was a helpful quote, and there were some really helpful ideas in this book. But this is, Shailen is a, a black pastor, and he writes this, I believe ethnicity is the proper term for Christians to adopt as we engage on this subject. Usually in our context, when people mention race, they're actually talking about ethnicity, now, this is important. The problem with the idea of race is, as it has been used historically, is that it was, a socially, it was socially constructed as a way to justify slavery in America. First, race has been shown to have no scientific basis whatsoever. Biologically speaking, the differences between human beings of different skin colors and hair textures are negligible at best. More significantly, race is not a biblical category. Ethnicity, on the other hand, does have a biblical basis. So when we're talking about ethnicity, what do we mean by ethnicity? Well, uh, Webster kind of defines ethnicity as anything that would pertain to... um, I lost my quote on here. Anything that would pertain to not just what we would call, uh, in, in our context, racial differences, so superficial exterior things like the color of your skin, the texture of your hair, like he talked about. Okay, that can apply and lay on to ethnicity, but ethnicity refers to more than that. It refers to cultural distinctives. It refers to geographic distinctives and boundaries. It refers to language. Okay, it refers to lots of different things. And so as a good example, I was actually just talking to a brother who's from India, and he said that uh, in India, all of the different states that India is broken up into actually represent different ethnic groups. So they have different languages. They have different Uh, even religious practices, different gods. But if you took that person and you brought them to America because of how we have been trained to think about these things, we would say brown. And that's silly, isn't it? That's that's actually very ridiculous to say that that is what matters most about this person, this distinct person is just the superficial thing, the color of their skin. When he was saying, no, in India we understand that these ethnic differences are actually much more substantial, that that's what what differentiates us and separates us, not the color of our skin. And so I agree with everything that Shailen said. The concept of race as we understand it in America is really an Enlightenment era understanding that was used to justify things like slavery. I think it was more than that, okay, but these were just kind of artificial categories that we imposed. And I don't, you know, you ever try that? Like, where's actually the line between black and white? You know, when somebody stops being black and they start being white, it's sort of arbitrary. And so, because the Bible doesn't use that word, and because we as a culture adopted that word for very bad reasons, I think we would be wise, not to say that those things don't matter now or, you know, that's in there, but I think we would be wise to just kind of set that word aside and use this word ethnicity instead. And now I already got to this idea that you can see these different ethnic groups. Those ethnic groups often have distinctiveness and even division between them. So that's really the question that we need to ask. Okay, if we're all one race in mankind, yet why are there these different ethnicities? So here's the question. Where do the nations come from? Nations, remember, is that word ethnos. Well, you can, if you read through the book of Genesis, and if you are not a member at DSC, we're going through the book of Genesis right now. Um, so this would be a great time for you to jump in. We just saw the creation of mankind in God's image. Well, when you get to Genesis 3, mankind rebels against God. And everything that follows after Genesis 3 and chapters 4 through 9 is increasing violence and division 
in the world. Division between peoples, but then those peoples are kind of grouping themselves together in families and they're moving away from each other. And it's that violence and division in chapters 4 through 9 in the book of Genesis that leads to the flood, okay? That God starts over again with Noah and his three sons. After his three sons come out of the boat, in Genesis chapter 10, we get what's called the table of nations, which is a list of all of these different countries and where they went, or these different families and where they went, and they became tribes and they became their own distinct nations. Well, after chapter 10, you get to chapter 11. Anybody remember what Genesis chapter 11 is? The Tower of Babel. And most scholars think that the Tower of Babel account in Genesis 11 is actually explaining where all of those nations came from in chapter 10. Okay, so if you remember the Tower of Babel, I won't go into the whole story, but this is what ultimately happens. The Lord dispersed from there over the face of all the earth these people, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So when we see these ethnic divisions and we see even the, uh, the warring or the enmity between ethnicities, we can say that that's really a Genesis 3 thing, but it stems from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, that, that the people were dispersed over the earth and formed these smaller nations, these smaller groups. And so just to be clear, the point of the Tower of Babel isn't that that diversity of nations is necessarily bad. This was, I was going back and forth and thinking about this, that would, would something like the division of mankind into nations have still happened had the fall not happened? Obviously, that's a hypothetical we can't know. We're just speculating. But, but maybe there might be something in God's plan that the people, as they went out into the world and multiplied, that that would still happen, but there wouldn't be enmity between those families as they're distinct that way. Or, or maybe not. I don't know. But what we see is that what resulted from the Tower of Babel is enmity, division, dispersion from these different nations, from these different ethnicities. And all of this, as I said, is a Genesis 3 problem. So we have to be really, really clear that the problem is sin. If we start like I was doing, you start saying that the problem is anything other than sin, then you're going to find solutions that are other than the solution to our sin problem. But there's only one solution to our sin problem, and that is the gospel. And it is a gospel of reconciliation. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation because God is reconciling us. You know what reconciled means? It means to take things that were apart and bring them back together. Our gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. So how are we reconciled? Well, first we have to start here. Remember Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities, your individual iniquities, have made a separation between you and your God. So this is the first and primary need for our reconciliation. In Genesis 3, we were dispersed from God's presence. We were separated from God. Our sin caused a separation. And look at Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to what? Reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this vision of separation and reconciliation, that's our understanding of the gospel, that we were separated from God because of our sins, and God came near to us as Jesus, as a man, so that we could be through the cross reconciled back to him, that God made peace by pouring out his wrath on his own son so that we could be 
reconciled. But look at, I love this about Colossians, is that it's so cosmic that Paul's not just saying he reconciled you back to God, although he did, and he said that in Corinthians, but he's, what does he say he's reconciling? All things. That in Christ it's not just individual reconciliation, but it is cosmic. It is the whole universe that God is fixing through Christ. Everything that was separated and broken, he's bringing back together in Jesus, and that includes the nations. So if you read through the Bible, one of the main storylines that emerges, when we look at it not in the lens of race, but through the lens of ethnicity or ethnoi, nations, tribes, division, when we read the Bible in light of that, in light of the nations, this is a storyline that emerges that runs through the whole Bible, and it's awesome. Okay, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, everyone is dispersed. We get the table of nations and all of these different divisions. Then you remember what number comes after 11? 12. And in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram. The Lord said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth. That's a synonym for a nation. All the nations shall be blessed. So Genesis 11 is the dispersion. Where did all these nations come from? Genesis 12, God says, I'm fixing it through one nation, through the nation of Abraham, through the nation of Israel, and my plan is to bring blessing to all of the nations of the earth. And that's foreshadowing this reunion, this reconciliation that's going to happen in the nation. He says the same thing. Genesis 17, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. These glimpses of this promise. God's got a plan for the nations. What is it? So this is Isaiah chapter 2. This is a vision that the prophet has. And let me say there's a debate about where this happens okay so this could be the millennial kingdom this could be the new heavens and the new earth for the point that i'm trying to make it doesn't matter this is just god's plan look at what he wants to happen it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it shall flow into jerusalem and many people shall come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. This is judge in a way of administrating right rule over the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's a vision that Isaiah has. It's actually remarkable because he's having it when they're about to get conquered by another nation. But he's got this vision God shows him of the latter days. In the latter days, these nations, we're not going to fight each other anymore. But we're all going to rightly worship the one true God, Yahweh. And there's going to be peace. We're not even going to need swords anymore. That's what's going to happen. And in fact, that is what is already happening in part in the church. Not fully, but in the church. So Ephesians 2, this is about the church. Paul writes, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, the word Gentile is the word nations, okay? So you people of the nations 
in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, talking about the Jews or Israel, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, listen to this. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, divided, separated, dispersed, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Hallelujah. Isn't that amazing? Okay, these two people, you were far off, you were divided. In Christ, you're brought together. You're brought together in one new man, one new race with the new Adam as the head. You're brought together. This is what this looks like. This is the old covenant, the old dispensation before Christ, okay, that there was the Jews, the people of Israel, this nation from Abraham that God had promised, hey, I'm going to use you to bless all the nations of the earth. But before the uh, time of Christ, before the cross, the Jews alone had access to God through the Mosaic system. Okay? And so you see that red line. That's what Paul calls the dividing wall of hostility. Not only are the nations not in a relationship with God, they're not able to have a relationship with God, but they're not in a relationship with the Jews either. There is enmity there. There's hostility there. And that was how things were before Christ came. But Paul says, now that the cross has come, the nations have a way of being reconciled to God too. Because it's all through Christ. The Jews enter into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And so do the nations for everybody, Jew and Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, That everybody has faith. Everybody that has faith in God is reconciled to God. And as you come up and you're reconciled to God, what happens? You get closer to these people that you were far off from that you get reconciled to each other. And so when Paul is talking about the Jews and the Gentiles in this church, he's saying, hey, you're not, you're not divided anymore. You're all in Christ. You're all one. You've been reconciled together. And that's amazing. But then it's actually even more amazing than that because it's nations, plural. And so this is really what it looks like. That not only are the Jews and the Gentiles reconciled together, but all of those different nations that were divided from each other, all of those different ethnic groups or tribes that had reason to fight each other, they're too all reconciled to God through the cross, and so they're all reconciled to each other as well. So Ephesians 2 says, look, there's no room for dividing walls of hostility for any reason because of the cross of Christ. Because we all come to the cross confessing that we're sinners and that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so there is peace. And isn't that what the world wants? Isn't that what the world's feeling? There's not peace. There's division. There's rivalry. There's, there's hostility between the nations. We have the gospel of peace. We have the gospel of reconciliation. And this is what it looks like. Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the name of the seminar. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. It goes back to Genesis 12. You see that? Heirs according to promise. Now look at Colossians 3.11. This is cool. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So I say this is cool because you actually see four distinct ethnic groups mentioned in that verse. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, which were non-Greek speaking Germanic tribes, and then the Scythians who were Asian nomads. So he says there's four distinct ethnic groups that are all in Christ. One. That's the church. That there is no division. There is no hostility. We are all united together. And this is all a reversal of the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you thought about this before. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but you see the point that Luke is trying to make. Every nation that went out, they're all gathered together in Jerusalem. And at the sound of the Holy Spirit, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing the apostles speak the gospel in his own language. Do you see the Babel reference in that? This is the reversal of Babel. The church the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's God undoing Genesis 11. How cool is that? This is the whole story of the Bible. And it ends. Or I'm sorry, it doesn't end. We're included in it. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations. Go, go fix that Babel thing, church. Go out and take this gospel of reconciliation to all of the nations so that they would be reconciled back to God and to one another. This is our mission. And it ends with success. Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is God's plan to bring all of the nations back together. Not for the sake of being back together, but for the sake of what? Worshiping the Lamb of God. This is what he's doing. And this is what he's sending us out to be a part of, to go to all the nations so that when we get to that day when we're at that throne, we're seeing all of these different people from all of these different tribes and we know that God's plan was fulfilled all the way back in Genesis when he said he was going to fix it. You guys didn't know you were coming to a mission seminar, did you? And if this doesn't get you excited, you might just want to go home at this point. I mean, this is amazing what God is doing in the world. And we have to start here. We have to start with this picture of what God is doing. Or else all of this other stuff, we're just going to set our sights too low. Okay? This is about the gospel of reconciliation. Everything else that we're talking about, all of the injustice in the world that we, we are concerned with, all of these other things, they, they are all just, just part of, fit into this bigger problem of sin and the solution of the gospel. And so we have to come here. But we still live in a post-Genesis 3 world, don't we? We've got this amazing hope. You know, you think again about Isaiah. He sees this day where all the nations are beating their swords into plowshares as he's about to get conquered. We have this hope 
We have this mission, but we still live in a world that is unredeemed, that is unreconciled. There are so many people, our neighbors, that, that do not love God, and because they do not love God, they don't love other people, and so we live in a fallen world. And so we have to be wise about how we live in this world. So I want to turn now and I want to talk about this issue of racism. What is racism? Because when we're talking about race in the culture and in, even in the church, this is really what we're thinking about, right? What about these divisions between races and people treating one another um, unjustly because of race? And you might already guess that if I said race, the word race is not really a useful biblical category, um, I'm going to also argue that racism may not be the best category that we, that we can use. Now again, we, we live in a society that for hundreds of years had the categories of race laid on top of us. And so we do think sometimes in those racial terms, you know, like I said, that we see somebody as black or white or brown when in another context, in another country, they may see that they're this tribe or that tribe, they speak this language, okay? But, but again, I want to kind of move away from using the word race, not just because uh, racism, not, not just because it's really uh, not as biblical a category, but also it's really confusing. I think this is kind of half the problem in these discussions is people use that word and they don't know what they're saying when they say it or you don't understand what the other person is saying in that. This is another quote from Shailin. And he kind of is going to list out in this different ways that people will use the word racism. Okay? He says, many people, when they hear racism, think Ku Klux Klan. That is, racism is conscious hatred toward another person or group because of their race. That often leads to violence against them. You see these are all in quotes, by the way, race and racism. He does that through the whole book because he doesn't like those words. And so he's only using them insofar as we talk about them. So for some people, it's racism is Ku Klux Klan. Okay? For others... Racism may include individual animosity, but it actually goes much further than that. It can also manifest itself in systems and institutions that have detrimental effects on its victims, even when there's no personal animosity on the part of the players involved. It could also refer to holding to stereotypes about groups of people or having negative preconceived notions or prejudices about people based on their race. Racism could refer to unconscious bias, Further, it may refer to discriminatory practices that exclude people of certain races from opportunities, wealth, or advancement in society. It could also refer to using disparaging language or terminology when referring to different races. These are just a small sampling of the myriad ways that racism is used. The problem should be apparent immediately. If I say that someone is guilty of racism, where on this spectrum am I placing them? Are we ready to equate someone who has an unconscious bias toward a group of people with the KKK? Surely a topic this serious deserves the benefit of layers of nuance. Okay, and he's not saying, I'm not saying that all of those different views of racism are, are right or correct. All I'm saying is that maybe this is why you feel like you're taking crazy pills when you talk to somebody else. You ever feel that? Like, like somebody is saying something is racism and you're like, I'm sorry, I just don't have a clue what you're talking about right now. And they're clearly getting frustrated because they're like, I don't know how you can't see this. But when they're using this word, they have totally different definitions. And I think a lot of times when people use the word racism, what they're actually trying to do rather unfairly is bring with it a lot of moral weight that doesn't belong there. And so I, I agree again with Lynn that we should probably just come up with better words. We should uh, use words that have more nuance. 
So when it comes to uh, this idea that we're talking about with uh, racism, well, what would be a better way for us to talk about this rather than using racism or any other kind of ism? Well, I think we can, again, do what I was saying. Let's go back to the big story. What is the actual problem? Genesis 3, sin. Let's start there. Let's start with a right definition of what sin is. So let's ask you this question. Instead of asking what is racism, let's ask what is sin? Oh, this is a helpful little definition. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. And you think about the moral law of God. It's both vertical and horizontal. So when we relate to God, we can fail to conform to God's law as far as we are relating to him. These are the first four of the Ten Commandments. But it's also horizontal. So God's law has to bear in how we treat other people. This is the last six of the Ten Commandments. Okay, So it has to bear that way as well. Any failure to conform to what God has said to do, what God has said is right, that's sin in that. And helpfully, the Bible likes to give us lists of sin so that we can have a better idea of what we're talking about. So this is Galatians 5. I've edited this, and I really want us to just see how many of these are these kind of relational sins, and what do these relational sins look like? And they're not all just outward in that you are acting on them. A lot of these are heart dispositions, aren't they? So just listen to this list of sins. The works of the flesh are evident. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In 2 Timothy, for people will be lovers of self, proud, arrogant, abusive, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, brutal, not loving, good. So why am I listing these out? Well, I want us to just remember that we're all sinners. If you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's how you got here, remember, is you confessed you were a sinner. And so when we read these lists of sins, maybe not, maybe not today, maybe not this week, but all of us have struggled with these things, haven't we? Pride, anger, hating other people. This is not alien to us. None of us are perfect. If you're perfect, if you've never been proud or arrogant about anything, I would love to meet you. We're sinners. Now, why do we hate people? Why is there rivalry? Why is there dissension? Why are, these, why are there all of these relational problems? Well, again, ultimately, the problem is Genesis 3, because we're sinners. But all kinds of weird things will bring out pride and hate and jealousy and enmity in us, won't they? Okay? I don't know what it is that gets you especially proud. I know what it is for me. I know what it is that makes me mad at or hate other people. There's all kinds of reasons that we struggle with sin. And in Christ, we're trying to put those sins down all the time. We're trying to walk in that obedience and that right moral law of God. But we're going we're gonna to fail sometimes. And one of the reasons, I'm not saying the only reason, one of the reasons that people sometimes fall into these kinds of relational sins is because of the basis of ethnicity. So do you hear how careful I'm being on that? Okay, I'm not just saying 
racism, but certain sins that arise out of some people because of the basis of ethnicity, because you feel pride towards someone else because of the color of your skin or because of your ethnic heritage versus their ethnic heritage, whatever it is, okay? And so this is where Lynn, again, I know I keep on talking about his book, but it was just really good on this stuff. He has this list of better categories. Remember, he was saying, let's not talk about racism, but let's kind of get more nuanced. And so he has these, what he calls common ethnic sins. And so you'll see these are just words coming out of those lists of sins that the Bible lists, and and we've just put the word ethnic in front of it. Okay, so ethnic hatred is hatred. Remember, hating one another and being hated by each other. Okay, well, that happens for all kinds of reasons. One reason might be on the basis of ethnicity. So he says ethnic hatred is active, passionate disdain for another person or group based on their ethnicity. So this would be the KKK. This would be neo-Nazis. There's examples of this in the Bible as well. Think about Haman in the book of Esther and how he thought towards the Jews. He hated all the Jews and he wanted to kill them. Okay? Another is ethnic pride. When a person has feelings of superiority concerning the ethnic group they belong to. So Lynn says modern examples of this are as blatant as the black Hebrew Israelites. Do we have those in New Mexico? I don't know that. I used to run into these people in Kentucky a lot. They're, they're a, a strange cult um, that believe that black people are superior to white people and kind of, kind of weird understanding of the Bible in the Old Testament, but they're very, very blatant that we are better than you, white people. Um, so that is blatant ethnic pride. But it could also be as subtle as a condescending comment made by an American homeowner to the immigrant worker who does her landscaping. Okay, that you think you're better than that person and so you can get away with a remark that's really insensitive or uncaring because they're not as um, deserving of dignity as you are. Okay, so that would be a kind of ethnic pride. Another common ethnic sin, he says, is ethnic favoritism or partiality, the practice of giving unjust preferential treatment to one person or group on the basis of their ethnicity. This happened in the church. In Acts chapter 6, there was the distribution to the widows. It says the Hellenistic widows were overlooked. That means that the, the Jewish widows were getting food and the Greek widows weren't. They were uh, being, partiality was being shown even in the church there. Ethnic oppression is another kind of ethnic sin, the unjust or cruel exercise of power or authority towards a person or people on the basis of their ethnicity. So this is really a step up from ethnic hatred. It's actually subjugating or uh, trying to harm other people, okay? So the displacement of Native Americans, he says, is a good example. Jim Crow laws are a good example in the Bible. The subjugation of the Egyptians, or the Hebrews by the Egyptians, ethnic oppression. You are a different people group, and so we are going to oppress you and put you into this system of slavery. I've got six of these. This is number five. Ethnic idolatry, elevating one's own ethnicity or someone else's to a place that causes the person to break the law of God. Ethnic idolatry occurs whenever a Christian makes their ethnicity their primary and ultimate identity, rather than the fact that they are united to Christ. Doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, you can do this. You can make your ethnicity ultimate. And that's sin. That's idolatry of your own ethnicity. And lastly is ethnic neglect. Ethnic neglect is a sin of omission. It occurs when a person fails to care properly for another person because of their ethnicity. This is a violation of Proverbs 3.27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So there are people uh, that you just ignore. You don't even, they don't even register to you because of the 
color of their sin or their language or their station in life, okay, that would be neglect. Now, there's other categories that I could come up with, but, but the point is I want to give you better terms to use than racism. So that if somebody comes and says, this is racist, you can come back and you say, I, I understand that you're concerned about some kind of ethnic sin here. Can we ha- talk a little bit more? What kind of ethnic sin are we talking about? Are we talking about hatred? Are you saying the fact that this is happening is, is equivalent to the KKK? Or are we talking something more like ethnic neglect? And do you see how that would just help us have better conversations on these matters? Now, notice what I'm not doing. As I'm not saying that you are all guilty of these things. And if you think I am, you misheard me. I didn't go through that because I'm saying you guys are all a bunch of ethnic sinners. I think that would actually be kind of an ethnic sin in itself. Right? Especially if I said because of the color of your skin, you must be guilty of this or that ethnic sin. I'm not saying that. It's not my job to convict you of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Okay? And if you go through that list and you say, I don't see any of those in me, praise God for that. Okay? Praise God for that. But I want to remind us of a couple of other verses. James 29. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the laws as transgressors. In Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Search me, O God, Psalm 139, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So why do I show you those verses? I'm not here to tell you, and, and frankly, church, even as, as just uh, you know, a minister in the church, I'm not seeing this stuff in our church. Again, praise God. I'm not seeing a lot of ethnic hatred or things like this. I'm not bringing this up. I'm just trying to give you categories. But as I have processed through these things, and especially my own upbringing and the place where, um, where I lived and, and grew up, I have just become very aware that the heart is deceitful above all things. So for me, when I come to matters of ethnicity and ethnic sin, I come to myself with a kind of godly self-suspicion. That I think I know my heart, but my heart's also a liar. And I lie a lot about the state of my own heart. And so I want to pray often, God, search me and just help me see. Help me see. That's why I showed you these other verses. Help me see if I'm being partial. Help me see if I'm uh, I'm having trouble, guys. Here we go. Help me see if I'm being partial. Help me see if I'm showing partiality to anyone. Not just on, for ethnic reasons, any kind of reason. If I'm treating somebody like I'm better than they are, or they're not as intelligent as I am, or they don't deserve as much attention as I do. God, help me to see that, because partiality is a sin. And especially if it's for ethnic reasons, search me, God, and show me that. Right? And then Philippians 2. Am I being selfish? Are there people that I'm just neglecting? I like that he said that, that neglect is a sin of omission. Are there people that I'm neglecting, that I'm not even seeing? And if there's an ethnic factor in that, Lord, help me see that. I'm not saying that there is. I'm not saying that for you. But I'm saying this is the posture that we ought to have. So lastly, um, I do want to ask this question as we've been talking about ethnic sins. 
and common ethnic sins. This idea of institutional sin. He kind of brought it up a little bit in his, uh, in his quote that I read to you. So what is institutional sin? You'll notice even that's kind of a strange word. I'm avoiding using the word systemic, and I'm avoiding using the word structural, not because maybe those aren't accurate words to use, but those are very freighted words to use. And so when I say structural, what you think is structural and what I think is structural might be different. Same with systemic. So institutional is the best kind of neutral word that I could find to talk about this idea of corporate sin. What is corporate sin? Is it such a thing, institutional sin? So again, going back to Genesis chapter 3, if we are all sinners, okay, if we have all sinned, and then what an institution is, is a group of sinners who are working together to do something. Well, why would we think that a group of sinners together trying to do something would somehow not sin when they're working together, even though they would sin when they're individuals? So we have to believe, okay, this is a very important Reformation teaching. And this is actually, you know, those of you like me that love America, the whole point of our American democratic system is because we believe in institutional sin. That's why there's checks and balances. Institutional sin is just when you get a bunch of sinners together, they do sinful stuff in institutions. And so when we're talking about this idea of institutional sin, that's what we're talking about, is that sometimes when a group of people work together in a company, in a government, in any kind of formal group way, that sometimes the structures that they are putting in place in their organization or in their institution will be sinful. Okay? It will do things that are wrong. And that's what we mean by institutional sin. So in a government, this could be laws. This could be the way that policies are enforced, okay? That it can bring about something other than God's right moral law. So this happens. I'll give you a a clear-cut example of institutional sin happening right now. Abortion. Abortion is institutional sin. Our government has written laws, enforces laws, carries itself in such a way that unborn humans are killed, and that's called right. That's called okay. And we know that that is so out of line with God's moral law, right? But we have this institution of our country and our society that says that that is okay. And, and that institutional sin isn't just because the law says that it's okay, but it's actually arising out of embedded sin patterns in our culture. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, you take most people in our modern Western culture, we'll just limit it to America, you talk to most ordinary people, they have sinful views about sexuality, about having sex. They have sinful views about what children are and when children are. They have sinful views about the meaning of life and purpose and work. They have sinful views. And because they have these sinful views and then they work together, they make sinful laws that says because this person is such and such an age of development, they're not out of the womb yet, it is okay for us to kill them. That's institutional sin. And it's wicked. And so we as Christians are right to say that's bad, that's institutional sin, and we should use every lever of power that we have to try and correct that. Because that's wrong. And the fact that the laws say that it's right doesn't mean that it lines up with God's moral law. So that's institutional sin. It's a thing. Okay? And just like we said, if there can be institutional sin, that's related to sex and children and marriage and work. And we said, well, there's this whole other, these whole other kinds of sin that are on the basis of sinful views of ethnicity. 
then we would have to say that there can be institutional ethnic sins. And in fact, our own country has a history of this. Slavery, chattel slavery in the American system is an institutional ethnic sin. Jim Crow laws were an institutional ethnic sin. They were put in place because of embedded sin patterns in the culture views of people with a different skin tone that use the powers of government and laws and policies and enforcement to harm people of a certain ethnicity, okay? Even all the way up, you know, you go to redlining and how people were, where they were allowed to live in certain neighborhoods. That was institutional sin. It was groups of people working together to carry out sinful things. And so we say, yes, there must be institutional sin. Thankfully, even uh, redlining and things like that, that was ended in 1968. We only, uh, you know, everybody can use water fountains that they want to. There is no uh, legal slavery in our country anymore. And so praise God for that, that we have addressed institutional sin in our country, where, where 300 years ago you would look around and you would just see institutional ethnic sin everywhere. And now look at us. And I feel like we just don't praise God enough for that, you know? It really bugs me when people say that things are just as bad now as they were under slavery. That's ridiculous, right? But it's happened before, and it can happen again, okay? And so what I'm trying to say with this is, is there institutional ethnic sin today? I think it might be debatable. This might be something that we would sit down and ask each other really good questions about. Are there things where there are laws or policies that are being enforced in such a way that it's bringing about harm against people of a different ethnicity? It's, it's harder to put your finger on that. And again, I think we should just stop and praise God for that, and then we can talk about it. Because we have to know that institutional ethnic sin is possible. It's happened before. What I know that we have today, what I know that we have today is the consequences of institutional ethnic sin that we for sure had hundreds of years ago. That there are still, there is still lots of disparity on the basis of ethnicity in our country that you can, I think, trace back to many of those very, very wicked and sinful policies that we have had in the past. Now, do I think that that's the only reason that there's disparity in our society today? No. Do I think that our country is fundamentally, that's why I don't like the word systemic, because the whole idea is that it's just baked into the walls and it's just everything about our society just needs to be torn down so that we can start over again? I don't think so. I think it was actually the system that we had that brought about justice on that institutional level, okay? But I do think that we still have effects of disparity in our society that arise from institutional sin in the past. And that's as much as I'm gonna say about that right now. If you have questions about that, that's why we're gonna have a Q&A time. But what I wanna bring us back to is that we are all prone to sin. We're all prone to partiality, and it can be on the basis of ethnicity. And God forbid that exists in any of our hearts. Because sin has no place in the kingdom of God. Whether institutional sin, but institutional sin still arises out of individual sin. And so, search us, O oh God. Help us to see that there wouldn't be any of this in us, and lead us in a right way. So that's as good a place as any to stop. Let's take a 10-minute break, and then we will jump into our next topic on diversity. <laughs>